0: Anyway, Mark chapter 13. This is what I'm going to do. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. I would have loved to read it, apparently. Um, A pastor friend of mine read it, and it was three minutes, 25 seconds. I read slower than him, Um, and because of time and because of how long it is, I'm not going to read all of it, and the reason why it's fine is because as a church, we preach expositionally, and what that means is we go verse by verse, um, line by line through the text, and so we're not going to miss out on a lot, right? We're just not, Um, but also, you guys have an opportunity, hopefully, I do a good job in Wetting your appetites for the topics we're going to be chatting about in March chapter 13, and you're going to leave here and can't wait to get home to read more and understand more. And so pray, and we're going to dive right in, yeah? Let's pray. God, thank you for this time. Thank you for allowing us to gather here this morning and to already sing of your goodness and your greatness and to also hear how your goodness and greatness is being displayed um, in the lives of so many people um, outside of our country and locally here. Um, God, we we are looking to you this morning. We just are. Um, And as we wait and anticipate your return, um, help us to not lose heart, but help us to be encouraged as we witness all that you're doing in us and through us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So um, if you've been with us, we've been looking at the life of Jesus from the um, Gospel of Mark. And um, in the past few weeks, um, we have been looking at Jesus' time in the Temple of Jerusalem. And so you guys are aware of this, but he is currently in the Temple. He's been in the Temple, and it's the Passover festival. Passover festival is this yearly annual festival where lots of Jews come to. Jerusalem specifically to the temple and thousands of people gathering. So Jesus has made his way there and we know what's going to be happening. This is his final days, this is his final week and later on he's going to um, suffer and die and rise again. So after a few days in the temple and what he's been doing in the temple, we've been aware of it. He's been rebuking the religious leaders um, for their hypocrisy and hard-heartedness. Um, Jesus' time within the four walls of the temple has now come to an end. What is going to happen is he's going to leave the temple and he's not going to return again because the cross awaited him, okay? And so as Jesus and his disciples made their way out of the temple, they couldn't help but notice the majestic beauty of the temple. They couldn't help but notice it. Um, The Jerusalem temple was one of the great wonders of the ancient world. Um, The Jewish historian Josephus helps us understand the magnificence of the temple when he writes that the temple was covered on the outside with gold plates that were so brilliant that when the sun shone, it was blinding, right? When I read this, I think of the Trump Tower in Las Vegas. Kind of gold, right? Something like that, am I right? He's your president. (laughs) Uh, Gold plates shining, blinding. Josephus goes on to say that where there wasn't gold, um, there were blocks of marble of such a pure white that from a distance strangers thought there was snow on the temple. And so this this Jerusalem temple, it was just one of the great wonders of the world at the time. And so um, it was a breathtaking building um, and it was majestic and it was huge and it was just glamorous in so many ways. And look at verse 1 with me, it says... And as he, that is Jesus, came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings, okay? And so his disciples are like admiring this incredible um, ancient structure. Jesus' response is interesting. It's unexpected. While they only had great things to say about the temple, Jesus kind of kills their vibe, vibe, right? And begins to talk negative about the temple. Look at verse two, it says, "'And Jesus said to them, "'Do you see these great buildings?' There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. In other words, they're all like, this temple is awesome, it's beautiful, it's amazing. Jesus is like, it's all going to get destroyed and it's all going to get demolished. Wow. After Jesus and his disciples walked out of the temple, they traveled east and hiked up the great mount olives, okay? From the mountain, they got a picturette um, and commanding view of the temple complex. But some of his disciples really couldn't enjoy the view. And the reason was they were still disturbed by what Jesus said earlier about this whole destruction of the temple. And so some of his disciples approached him and said to him, look at verse 4, hey, Jesus, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And so Jesus has just told them this incredible temple is gonna get demolished, all right? And so they're like, Jesus, when is this going to happen? We know you are an incredible man. Most of what you say actually happens. And so tell us, give us an idea of when this demolition of the temple is going to happen. And so this was, the question that led to what is famously known as the as Jesus' Olivet Discourse. In this speech, Jesus will give his disciples and us a glimpse into the future. In it, he's going to reveal things about the future that are near that will happen, right, in the time of the disciples. And he is going to also reveal things that are far, okay? Things that will happen immediately and events that will take place far into the future. And the first thing Jesus wants to talk about is the appearance of false messiahs, okay? Look at verse five. And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Okay. In other words, he's saying, watch out that no one deceives you. Look at verse 6. It says, he goes on to say, Many will come in my name saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. Later, in this same discourse, he brings up the topic of false messiah, messiahs. Again, um, look down at verses 21 um, and 22. It says, Jesus says, more about these false messiahs. And, and then, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, um, there he is, do not believe it for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. And he goes on to say, but beyond God, I have told you all things beforehand. And so this is what Jesus is talking about. He's saying there's gonna be false messiahs. There's gonna be people that are gonna come along that are gonna to pretend to be messiahs and they're gonna lead many astray. And this actually happened. And it's happening now. In the first century, there was a number of people, a number of figures who rose up and said, I am the Messiah. And guess what? They gathered a huge following because people got deceived and thought they were actually who they were saying they were. Okay, Um, and so here Jesus warned his disciples against these false Christs who pretend to be the Messiah and Saviour. Jesus also goes on to predict that there will be catastrophic events. These he described um, as wars and natural disasters such as earthquakes and famine. Next, um, in verse nine, he's going to tell them to expect to go through an intense and painful um, um, season of persecution, betrayal, and rejection. Look at verse nine. He says, but be on your guard. Jesus says to them, for they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. Jesus reveals to his disciples that in the near future, in the near future, not long after his resurrection and his ascension, his followers will be captured, punished and imprisoned because of their association with him. They will also stand before government officials who will interrogate them. And even though these were to be very difficult and challenging um, times for Jesus' followers, what he does next, it's awesome. He includes a word of comfort. In verse 11, he assures them not to be fearful or anxious. When they're being interrogated, but to anticipate the help of the Holy Spirit who will empower them to respond wisely. Let's look at verse 11. It's so comforting, it's so awesome. Look at it. It says, When they bring you to trial, and deliver you over. Do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Christians will not only be persecuted by government officials, but man, their persecution is going to be more painful. Look at verse 12. It says, and brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. What's happening here is that Christians are not only going to receive, be on the receiving end of hostility, hostility from governments and people on the outside or strangers, they're going to be persecuted by family members, by family members. And look, we live in America, okay? We live in San Diego and we have not yet to actually experience persecution, as in raw, dying because of your commitment to Christ. None of us here have managed to receive it. But what we do know, right, is that since Jesus spoke these words, um, more than 43 million Christians have been killed for their faith. We hear it all the time. Some of you guys um, um, have read online or you're signed up to a website that gives you updates on the persecuted church our brothers and sisters, who are right now well I mean right now, look at us, we are meeting in a public space right right here right now, right we have our bibles open we're singing songs to cre- we're singing songs to Jesus, and all of these are fine, but man, like we are so privileged and so blessed to be able to worship and gather in public. But you guys are aware of this. We have so many brothers and sisters in parts of the world, and some of you guys have been there, that are actually being persecuted because of their association with Jesus. Many believers who came from strict Muslim families have been rejected by their families and killed for choosing Jesus, okay? If you, right, um, came from a Hindu, Family in India, you could be rejected and martyred for choosing Jesus. In China, all right, in China, Christians are only allowed to practice their faith in the state-sponsored church. If they refuse to do so, they'll be persecuted. It's estimated that since November 2000, okay, 1,500 churches have been destroyed or shut down in China this past summer. We sent out the Jacks to Indonesia and you guys got the opportunity to hear an update from them, okay? And and we're happy to, and we're just excited to do so. But when they were going to Indonesia, we were, and they were aware of the fact that Indonesia is a predominantly Muslim country, okay? And many Christians there are challenged to convert to Islam or die. And many churches have been bombed Right, during their worship gathering. And so, what Jesus said thousands of years ago, right, to his original disciples on the Mount of Olives is, right, being fulfilled. The followers of Jesus have and will continue to experience the most painful kinds of persecution, rejection, and betrayal as they seek to stand strong for Jesus Christ. That's the reality of what we're living in. And from what I've heard, persecution is on his on its way um, to, to, to America. Um, we're, you know, I don't know how many years that we're, we're off of all of this, but I'm sure it's going to get to a time when we as believers are not going to be able to gather and freely worship as we are. Things, are gonna, things have been changing on government levels and things are going to continue to change that will impact um, our freedom in worship. Jesus is not done yet. How are you guys doing? Yeah? This is good stuff, isn't it? This is good stuff. It's making you think, okay? Um, Jesus is not done yet. He has more to say about the future. Look at verse 14. It says, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Stop there, okay? This is this mysterious um, abomination that causes desolation. And this has been... The subject of endless debates amongst Christians, and so who's heard of that term, right? Who's heard of that term, abomination of desolation? All right. Some of you have, some of you haven't. If you haven't, welcome to church. You're going to get an understanding of what that is and maybe you can go and impress some friends with it. Okay, the expression comes from the book of Daniel where it describes how the temple will be violated, God's house. The Hebrew word, now listen carefully, translated abomination, appears 29 times in the Old Testament. It refers to anything that is detestable, foul, immoral, blasphemous and abhorrent to God. It was often used for idolatry and pagan worship practices. And so the term abomination has the idea of this filthy, disgusting, blasphemous idol. Also, the word desolation means the complete and devastating judgment of God. And so the abomination of desolation means this filthy, disgusting idol that brings about the complete and devastating judgment of God. And although there are many opinions as to exactly when it happened or what this abomination of desolation actually is, most Bible scholars agree that it describes some sort of gross and detestable and blasphemous blasphemous act of sacrilege committed against the Lord and so listen to this some believe the prophecy this actual um, abomination that caused desolation was fulfilled in the second century BC by a king named Antichius okay I hope I pronounced that right. And what he did was he violated the temple in Jerusalem in the most awful way possible. This is what he done. He violated the temple by offering swine, okay, pigs, and that is really offensive um, to Jews, on the great altar and by setting up public brothels in the sacred courts. Before the very holy place itself, he set up a great statue of the Olympian Zeus and ordered the Jews to worship it. And so this guy named Antiochus, right, Um, absolutely did some awful and blasphemous stuff in the temple. And so many thought that was the fulfillment, all right, of what Daniel was talking about. But um, this historical event cannot be the fulfillment of this prophecy because when Jesus talks about it here, he is obviously talking about an event in the future, not the past. Now, not long after... Jesus spoke these words. Something happened that many thought was the fulfillment of this prophecy. It took place in 40 AD when Caligula, Caligula, Caligula was the emperor of Rome, and what he did was—and who guys who knows this Roman emperor? I've watched documentaries about him, but he was a bit of a madman. He was a bit of a lunatic, um, and he absolutely carried out a lot of barbaric acts. And um, but one thing he did that many believed was the act of the abomination of desolation was when he decided to set up a statue of himself in the holy place, right? Of of the temple of Jerusalem okay but his plan never came to fruition it never happened because he died not long after the ship that carried the statue arrived in Jerusalem and so they never set it up because by the time the statue got there they got word that he died and they were like we're not setting up his statue let's move on to someone else okay right <laughs> and so that's what happened but Again, some people are very much like, no, we don't think that was really it. That was not the abomination of desolation. But... Um, if you kind of get the statistics of what people really think Jesus was talking about, this prediction Jesus was making about the abomination abomination of desolation, a lot of people believed it happened in AD 70. And so what happened in AD 70? According to Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, um, the most accurate fulfillment of this prophecy took place under the direction of the Roman general Titus okay right he believed josephus believed that titus's conquest and destruction of the temple and the city in ad 70 was the fulfillment of this prophecy titus what he did was right with his army he entered jerusalem burnt the temple and destroyed the city, okay? This invasion was so brutal and so awful, it caused the death of about a million Jews who died by crucifixion, famine, or other horrors. And so a lot of people think when it comes to the whole idea of abomination or devastation, it happened in AD 70 with Titus and his conquering and destruction of Jerusalem. okay. Although, one of these historical events could be the fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy, okay? To this day, some believe this prophecy has not been fulfilled. Some people are like, we're still waiting for it. And that's people's opinions. When we're talking about end times and eschatology, it's crazy, okay? I'm trying to like, as I was studying here, as I was studying this, it was so difficult to kind of piece it all together and kind of present something that doesn't need explanation of every side and all of that, okay? But a lot of people are like, it's still not fulfilled and we're still awaiting it, okay? But whatever the abomination was, Mark, the author, okay, of this biography of the life of Jesus intended the audience to understand it as a fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy and another sign of the beginning of the birth pains. The exact timing of this prophecy may not be as clear, as clear as we would want it to be, but what is clear is what they were to do when it takes place. In verses 14 to 15, Jesus said to his disciples that when they witness these abominable acts in the temple, they're to take to their heels. They're to run, to run without looking back, without picking up belongings. In verse 17 and 18, Jesus expressed pity for pregnant women and nursing moms and urged his disciples to pray for them and also pray that it will not take place during the difficult conditions of winter. Who likes winter? Nobody likes winter. But man, when there is trouble and tribulation and hardship and it's winter, it makes it worse. And so Jesus is urging his disciples to pray um, about those things. This will be a terrible time. The worst time in history, in verse 20, Jesus talks about how those days will be so horrific. Verse 20, if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Jesus then describes what will happen afterwards. Look at verses 24 to 25. He says, but in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken when I read that it takes me back to when I was a teenager and I watched this film, this movie I think I got it from Blockbuster when it was on VHS or something it was to do with the end times and it depicted exactly what was happening here, right? The whole sun being darkened um, and the moon will not give its light, stars, you know, Drop in and I'm sitting there as a young guy it was probably dark, late at night. You do watch films like that late. You end up watching films like that late at night, and you shouldn't, okay? It's like when you're watching a movie, and you've got this character, and they're curious, and they're going somewhere they shouldn't be going. In the same way, I shouldn't be watching this movie late at night, but I did. And I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking to myself, this is nuts, and stars are dropping, and it's a cheesy, Now I think it's cheesy but then. I was like, oh my gosh, this is crazy times, all of that. Um, What we just read, um, again, although it's been depicted by Hollywood in so many ways, it has been debated by Christians for centuries and will continue to do so. Some people interpret it figuratively, okay? while others view it literally. Some believe that it's referring to the end of human history. Others say that it's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. And so this whole idea of the moon being darkened, the sun and stars dropping, some people think, oh, it's a figurative term for something else. Some people are like, it's definitely gonna happen, okay? We may not live long to experience it, but it's gonna happen. And so they are some of the opinions on that but however you interpret this one thing is certain after all of these things are going to be taking place verse 26 reminds us of something that is going to happen and if we want to read that it says and then they will see the son of man coming in clouds with great power and glory Jesus didn't only reveal signs for the destruction of the temple, but he also lets us know about his second coming, okay? (laughs) Jesus died, resurrected, and ascended up to heaven, and he will come again, not as a suffering servant, but as a conquering king. Jesus is the son of man, he's the son of God, and he will return with great power and glory. After hearing about all of these things, it's easy for us to be consumed. I know, hopefully, or I don't know, some of you might walk out of here and go, what's for lunch? I'm hungry. But I'm sure that some of you will walk out of here thinking, wow, (laughs) this stuff is Crazy, Mark, chapter three. I need to read it, and I need to study it, and I need to spend some time understanding it. Jesus is brilliant. Aware of this, aware of how this can be consumed, in this idea of end time prophecy. Um, what he does next is that he helps prevent this from happening. And what he does is he closes his teaching with two parables, two parables. And you guys know what a parable is. It's a story that communicates a spiritual thing, okay? And these parables are found in verses 28 through to 37. The first parable, um, which is about newly sprouted leaves On a fig tree, being a sign for summer, is all about the signs that point to the nearness of his second coming. The second parable, which is about servants remaining faithful to their responsibilities, even when their master is out of town, is all about not knowing the time of his return. Again, in verses 32 and 37, what he does here is that he, he exhorts us all to be on guard and to keep awake. Because the reason why he's doing this is because no one knows exactly when he'll return. And that the only person that knows when Jesus is actually going to return and bring an end to history, as we know it, is God the Father. It's interesting that as Jesus is alive and well on earth, speaking this prophecy, he doesn't know when he'll return, okay? But right now, the reality is that Jesus, okay, because he died, he resurrected, and he ascended to heaven He's at the right-hand side of God and he absolutely knows when he's going to return. But before he left and ascended, through this and through other biblical passages, he helps us begin to understand how we ought to live in light of his second coming. In his blog post titled, Dating Jesus, kind of, do you get it? Dating Jesus. Pastor and author Stephen Whitmer says that ever since the time of Jesus, people have been claiming that end time events will occur in their own day, right? We've been dating Jesus, meaning trying to figure out when exactly he's going to come. Many people have tried to predict exactly when Jesus will make such a comeback, okay? And I'm sure many of you, maybe, and I know you wouldn't want to admit it, have believed in the past that Jesus would come at a certain time. I'll admit it. I I thought... (laughs) I got so caught up in end time and everything, the year 2000, who remembers that? I really got convinced because I was, really, I was watching all these guys who were like, Jesus is coming back in 2000, the millennium, and all of that. And I was like, oh my gosh, yes, he is. And, you know, I so got caught up in that, okay? And he never did, and after that, I haven't bothered with it since. But recently, just before the summer, I met this man, and he was... Like, I was sitting with him, I was at a prayer meeting, and I was sitting with him, and we were just chatting, and he just, like, just changed the conversation to the whole idea of end times, and he looks at me, and he was like, yeah, you know, Jesus is coming back this summer, and I laughed, (laughs) I kind of went, oh, 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 and he was dead serious, (laughs) he was just looking at me, like, and he was like, he's really coming back, and I was like, oh, Oh, oh my gosh. But that's what happens. There are so many people, and Jesus never came back summer, did he? He didn't. And I keep seeing him most Tuesdays when I go to the prayer meeting, I just want to like go up to him and just kind of spark that conversation again. But I don't want to do that. He'll probably like say, Jesus is coming back Christmas. And I'm like, oh my gosh. All of that. All right. All right. Like this man, many people throughout history have been convinced of Jesus' his return. Um, and the, the thing is, like, Jesus was so clear in saying that no one knows the day or the hour, but only his Father in heaven. And the more we're consumed with this all, the more we're distracted from what he's actually called us to. And what Jesus has called us to is to be faithful, is to really be faithful that is what he's called us to Jesus has not only exposed us to some of the things that will take place before he returns he has told us over and over again to be on guard and stay awake and that's the last thing he says in verse 37 he says and what I say to you I say to all stay awake and what he basically means by this is for us to be ready for his return and you know for sure you're ready for Jesus' return when you put all your faith in Him. And so, there may be some of you here today who are just exploring Jesus, exploring the whole idea of Christianity. Welcome to church. You chose an interesting Sunday to come to church, but we love you. But the thing is, these words by Jesus are not to be taken lightly, okay? These words by Jesus are to be taken seriously, okay? Some of his predictions, some of his prophecies may have happened, okay? But There are others that haven't happened, will happen. And what Jesus says is true is absolutely true. It's guaranteed it's going to happen. I love what Sinclair Ferguson says. He observes that instead of seeing this teaching about the future as Um, as the spur to new obedience and faithfulness, it has often been an excuse for either controversy or laziness in the Christian church. And so he's just saying like, we can get so distracted by this and um, begin to have debates and talk and there's all these controversies surrounding end times. We miss the point Jesus is trying to make, okay? We can either be lazy Some of us are like, oh, I'm not going to think about it. And I'm just going to ignore this whole thing about Jesus coming back. But man, um, Sinclair Ferguson goes on to say, if what we have learned in this chapter does not make us more watchful as Christians, then we have not yet allowed Jesus to have the last word in our lives. When Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD those who listen to and obey Jesus escape the horrible destruction that came upon the city. When it comes to the far greater destruction that will come upon the whole earth, those who listen to and obey Jesus can escape the horrible destruction that will come. And so... The million dollar question for all of us is, how would you spend tomorrow if you knew Jesus was was going to return in the evening? How would you live your life tomorrow if you knew that by the end of tomorrow, Jesus would come back? And for me, I've been reflecting on this, looking at my life and looking at how I'm living for Jesus and thinking, man, I live as though I'm gonna be here forever. I live as though that my life will continue, okay? Uh, on this earth, and we get so consumed with life and with everything, we kind of remain on the shores of what it looks like to serve and live for Jesus. Jesus is calling us to walk past the shore and walk deeper into the ocean of his love and live in a radical and more fulfilling way for us he's just calling us to it and so my question is how will this impact the way you live now because it should it should, as we've been reflecting on the life of Jesus, he said some challenging things. And most of us, right, what happens is that we hear what Jesus says and begin to reinterpret it um, based on our culture, right, and begin to think, man, like what Jesus just said there, oh, he was talking to the people in the first century. It doesn't really apply. And if, and if it applies, let me just make these adjust, adjustments to what Jesus has said so that it suits me and it suits our culture, right? Some of what Jesus has said is honestly true. And some of them we're supposed to not just listen and process it, that's all we want to do, but actually live it out. And so the question again is, how would you spend tomorrow if you knew Jesus was going to return in the evening? And so Kings Cross Church, we have an amazing opportunity in this city to live radically for Jesus. And living radically for Jesus means um, living in a way that communicates to the world that Jesus is our treasure. And if Jesus is truly our treasure and we're satisfied in him, and it's all about Jesus in our lives, we are going to want to share his love, his grace, his mercy to people. We're going to be all out for Jesus all out it's Jesus I love you you're coming back you've done so much for me I want the people I live with the people I work with the people I study with the people I work out with I want everyone you've put in my path in my friendship zone to know you and live for you that's what we're called to do and so let's not waste time right as a church communion. Let's not waste time. Let's radically live for Jesus. Let's learn how to love one another. And we're going to be turning up the heat and volume of what it looks like for us as a church to be a family on mission with Jesus, okay? We're going to be exploring that and living that more. We want to love one another. And guess what? When we express love for one another in the way Jesus expressed expressed love for us, people on the outside will look at our community and they will be compelled by us they absolutely will and this is what it means let's just live for Jesus fully let's just live for Jesus let's pray God thank you for this time thank you for this word thank you for your spirit that is speaking to all of us. God, I pray that you remove, um, you purify everything I've said in the lives of people. If I've said anything that was not from you or that may have been confusing to the hearts and minds of people, God, may you clarify in the lives of people. May you do that, Lord. I love you and we love you and we want to seek you with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul. Help us to not waste our lives. Help us to be radically generous with our time, with our talent, with everything you've given us so that you may be glorified in the lives of many people so that when you return, you will not only gather us, but you will gather so many other people into your kingdom where we will worship you as King of kings and Lord of lords. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. All right. Every Sunday, what we do is we gather and we remember Christ. We remember Jesus Christ. Today and once a month, we remember Christ in a unique way. We celebrate his life, We proclaim his death. We rejoice in his resurrection through communion. Today, we look deep within ourselves. What what we need to do is examine our attitudes and intentions. And as we do, what will happen is that our, we will realize this, that our attitudes and our intentions are flawed. And so as we celebrate Jesus' life and proclaim his death and rejoice in his resurrection, this is what we're reminded of. We are reminded that as we commune with Christ in community, as we eat this bread, okay, um, the body of Christ broken for us and we drink of this cup, the blood of Jesus poured out for our forgiveness, we are reminded that our sins are forgiven and we have been made alive together with Christ. And so as a church, we are going to celebrate communion. And how we're going to do that is that in a moment, I am going to invite you to the table. And over there, there are two bowls. We have um, some... um, some biscuits or chips, whatever they are. And then we have a bowl of grape juice, okay? And what you're going to do is in your own time, you are going to make your way over there. You're going to grab a piece of bread and you're going to dip it in the juice. And then what I want you to do is come back to your seat and reflect on all that Jesus has done for you. What you will do is reflect on your intentions and reflect on your heart and you will realize how much of a sinner you are. But as that happens, I want you to turn your gaze out of yourself to Jesus Christ and be reminded of what he's done for you through his life, death, and resurrection. And then you partake in communion to celebrate all that he's done for you. Okay, and so whenever you guys are ready, communion is available for you.